Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Not so long ago, it seemed unimaginable that you'd be able to hear a pin drop in Times Square, that there'd be no line for security at the airport, or that rush hour traffic would all but disappear. But here we are. It's been about a month since Americans began sheltering in place or practicing social distancing. Those of us lucky enough to work remotely are home. That's not a choice that healthcare workers, grocery store employees, truck drivers, or transit workers can make. The severity of this pandemic is unprecedented, and it will change the fabric of society in ways we haven't yet realized. That's why today we wanted to focus on the impact this pandemic is having on those of us who are just starting out in life. These are the people who will be living with the repercussions, good and bad, the longest. Right now, they're missing out on celebrating important milestones, graduations, weddings, bar mitzvahs, quinceaneras, and pregnancies. They're leaving school at a time when more than 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment. They're starting a family during an unprecedented health crisis. My name is Zara Green, and I'm from New York City. Uh, The life event that coronavirus has upended for me is I am pregnant. And not only am I pregnant, but when I discovered this, I was living in Paris. My name is Yara Rashad, and I am from Chicago, Illinois. Coronavirus has appended many life events for me, including my last semester of law school, my graduation, and my future employment. I'm Sherry Bonin from Orange, California. My daughter's wedding was supposed to be on May 9th. My name is Eric Bone. I'm originally from Indianapolis, Indiana, but currently live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm completing my master's in business administration at the Roth School of Business at the University of Michigan. Coronavirus has changed almost every aspect of what I thought was going to be a great finish to the graduate school experience. Milestones that would normally be celebrated are now met with fear and sadness and worry. I, I traveled back from Paris in the dead of the night after Donald Trump announced that uh, he was closing the borders for everybody from Europe. I mean, it makes me feel unsettled. Uh, my husband and I were saying yesterday that we haven't really had an opportunity to celebrate being pregnant because there have been so many just life events and things that we didn't expect being thrown our way. The first big ultrasound that we did for the baby was the day that one of the hospitals in New York City closed um, its doors to partners being able to join the, the pregnant woman in the room. So we arrived at the hospital fully expecting the two of us to go in together, and there was a security guard who told us that he couldn't come. The appointment took two and a half hours, so he had to you know wait in the lobby by himself for two and a half hours, just kind of twiddling his thumbs and wondering what was going on, which, which was hard for both of us. I was in my last semester of law school at Notre Dame when the coronavirus pandemic hit the States. Notre Dame was on spring break at the time, and we received an email stating that in-person classes would be suspended for the rest of the semester. Notre Dame canceled commencement, um, and we are instead having a virtual graduation via Zoom. Everyone keeps telling me that not having a graduation doesn't take away from my accomplishments, but it definitely feels that way. Graduation was meant to be a celebration of the last three years of my hard work, 
It was meant to be a thank you to my parents who had made so many sacrifices to support me. And it was going to be the final goodbye to a very important chapter of my life. It's hard not to feel like I was robbed of what was supposed to be the best year of my life. The wedding is tentatively postponed until October. But we haven't ordered the new invitations yet because we're still unsure if that date will be safe to proceed with. Also, it's difficult to make happy plans when a crisis continues to unfold. Luckily, the vendors and businesses we hired have all been very kind, and since they all knew the reason why, they just let us move the date. We just hope that all of these businesses make it through and reopen. The biggest change has definitely been kind of to what comes next after grad school and my post-MBA job search. I was focused on the travel and hospitality industry with companies like Marriott, uh, where I interned last summer as my target. Um, But obviously, with the outsized impact that the pandemic has had on that industry, nearly all the companies I was networking with and and applying for jobs went went on hiring freezes in March. And, you know, having continued um, conversations with many of the contacts I have, a lot of them are being, you know, furloughed for the foreseeable future. The prolonged uncertainty is difficult to digest especially for those of you who had plans to celebrate achievements you'd worked towards for so long. As far as the pregnancy is concerned, there's just so much uncertainty surrounding what will be allowed, what will not be allowed, what recovery will look like, what the first few months for my child will look like. Now, I have no idea when or if the bar examination is taking place. And if the bar exam gets postponed even further than what most states are doing, it will have a significant impact on my financial situation. I definitely feel as though my plans have been completely derailed. Unfortunately, there's not much I can do to adjust my plans right now because there's just so much uncertainty. It's been very stressful on my daughter and our whole family having to deal with first planning an entire wedding in about four months, then having to suddenly stop everything. My daughter's been through so much in recent years, and recently she and her fiancé had to evacuate their home because of the Sonoma County wildfires two times in the past two, three years. We just wanted something good to happen to her for once. We really hope it'll happen. We need something to celebrate. I think first and foremost, this should be a time of celebration with friends and family, completing the MBA process. But really, out of that, I think the biggest disappointment has been the inability to spend time with the classmates and faculty and friends who I've made um, here in Ann Arbor at the university and have really made the experience unforgettable. To help us understand the socioeconomic toll the pandemic is having on Americans, especially those of us who are younger, I spoke with Hannes Schwant, an assistant professor at Northwestern University's School of Education and Social Policy. I spoke to him specifically about the impact recessions have on those trying to enter the workforce. There's a growing literature in economics that has shown that graduating in a recession has um, you know, persistent impacts on income and labor market outcomes. So, you know, if you, if you enter the labor market doing an economic downturn, then you will earn less in the short run, but then also this is like observed for, for many years to come. And in the most recent study with Phil van Wachter, um, we are looking at the medium to long term. So we are following people up to 30 years uh, after they, they enter the labor market, so you know, around like age 50. 
And we particularly focus on mortality as an important mm -hmm. indicator for health and, and, and overall well-being. And we see that indeed mortality rates in midlife uh, are increasing for cohorts that were particularly unlucky and entered the labor market in bad economic circumstances. So why would their mortality rate increase as they get older? We cannot really pinpoint down the precise mechanism, but the general idea is that gradual recession on average can lead to socioeconomic decline. And so this could mean you have less income, that might mean more stress in your life, that might mean poorer um, health behaviors, and we and maybe a riskier lifestyle. And we indeed see that mortality increases due to heart disease, drug overdoses, uh, lung cancer, liver disease, so causes that can be tied to health behaviors. How hard is it to compare past recessions to this moment that we're in? Yeah, so this is truly unprecedented, just like the magnitudes, right, of like mm -hmm. the increase in unemployment rates and so on. So anything that we have estimated for previous recessions, you know, now we have to extrapolate to levels that we have never imagined. Like when we were writing the paper, we were like, oh, a strong recession would be one where maybe unemployment rates increase by maybe five percentage points. But now we are talking about increases by up to like 30 percentage points or something. So... Mm -hmm. That is one difference. And there's, of course, always the question, you know, to which extent do any of those effects just like scale up? Um, the other aspect, of course, is that the pandemic has a very particular uh, heterogeneous impact on different groups. Right. So um, we can imagine that some groups weather the storm and like the lockdown better than others because of this job structure and so on. Or maybe some people will lose their job more in some in some professions more than in others. So this is also you know, different from, from previous recessions. But I think the the takeaway from our research is just to say, what have we learned about particularly vulnerable groups from past recessions? And I think we have every reason to believe that those who are about to enter the labor market are also a particularly vulnerable group in the upcoming recession or in, in, in this period of time. Right. As you look at what the government has done thus far, and I'm specifically looking at the the CARES Act, which the highlight of that is the individual checks being sent out to Americans. Um, is this enough? Is this the, the kind of things that could help these recent graduates or people who are new to the workforce? Or is there something else that government really needs to be doing to help this really vulnerable population? Um, so I think, of course, it's 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 a first step to send out those checks, right? Even though one could one could debate about like uh, how 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 much money is sent out compared to like you know other loopholes we have found out recently about like in the Care Act, right? Like for like very rich people and so on. Um, but I think the the specific issue that we are facing with the labor market entrance is not so much that they are lacking. Um, money in the short term, you know, maybe there might be some expenses for like applications or so on, right, where they where, where this could help. But in general, it's not an issue of that they are just lacking, you know, a few thousand dollars in in, in, in the months of, of, of job application. The issue in, in general is that there are no jobs, right? right. And that, that the matches that typically are formed and where like good candidates find good firms and start working there, start accumulating human capital, get experience and so on, become a valuable employee over time. 
uh, those matches don't don't happen. And I think it would be great to have something like, for example, wage subsidies that that firms can get for hiring recent graduates and a new labor market entrance. And I think that would be a much more directed incentive um, policies that are directly targeted at creating those matches, you know, and having the the new labor market entrance, you know, getting job offers, that would be particularly useful. Well, Hannes Schwant, thank you so much for taking the thanks, time thanks so much. and walking us through this. Yeah, of course. Hannes Schwant is an assistant professor at Northwestern University's School of Education and Social Policy. About a decade ago, the Great Recession was considered to be the most severe economic slowdown since the Great Depression. By late 2009, more than 15 million Americans were unemployed. Among them were millennials, graduating from college and eager to enter the labor force at the worst possible time. Many of them struggled to find work relevant to their interests, so they took a series of low-paying jobs that reduced their lifetime earnings. And for many millennials, this led to distrust of the institutions, policies, and personalities that they believe contributed to the financial meltdown. I talked to Amanda Mull from The Atlantic about how coronavirus might do the same for what she's calling Generation C. One of the stories that's emerging about the pandemic is that disasters strike different groups of people depending on where they are in life. And that means socioeconomically, that means employment-wise, that means you know, lots of different things, whether they live in rural or urban areas. Uh, but I think one that's been largely overlooked is how it strikes people differently based on where they are in just sort of the arc of their lives. Uh, but one thing that could be really, really severe in younger people is is the sort of socioeconomic and uh, political fallout that they have then have to deal with for the rest of their lives. Uh, so Generation C is a term that my colleague Ed Young coined. And uh, we have sort of at The Atlantic fleshed it out to mean young people right now basically under the age of 25. So those in school, those in college, and those who are just in their very first uh, post-graduation jobs trying to make a transition uh, from being young to being grown, uh, mm -hmm. from, from studenthood to adulthood. What do we think it means for these young people who again, if they were in school or going through sort of their normal lives and struggling with all the things that a tween struggles with or a person that is going into um, later teenage dumb goes into when they don't have those social norms, when they don't have those, those traditional points in their life that they can point to as guideposts. One of the things that, uh, that I think all maybe not all, but pretty much most of Americans sort of agree on is that the story of our teen years isn't just the story of going to school, that going mm -hmm. to middle school and going to high school means a lot to people in a lot of different ways. It's where you learn, you start to build the skills to, um, to hash out interpersonal conflicts, to have romantic relationships, to understand your relationship to authority, to understand what you're passionate about in life. So all of those like skills that you're picking up along the way that 
don't necessarily have anything to do with what's in your textbooks or what you're taking tests on are really, really super valuable. And they generally require a lot of in-person interaction. There have been studies done on distance learning programs that are that are conducted digitally. And even in situations where they are well-planned and well-funded, the results that you get out of them, the thing, the amount that the kids benefit is just not as much as going to school mm-hmm. in person. And then for kids who are from economically disadvantaged backgrounds or from unstable families, schools where you get hot meals, schools where you get responsible authority figures that you can rely on, it's where you start to build your framework of understanding your role in life in a, in a way that is far more important for disadvantaged kids than it is for ones with stable home lives. So you have this whole array of potential factors that, that could be impacting how these kids will move through the rest of their lives right now. Right. There's also been a lot of talk, though, about, especially if you're on the younger end of the millennial spectrum of a generation that maybe they were in school during the downturn of 2008, or they started the job market on the tail end of the recession. But the sort of double whammy that that generation is is feeling. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how this sort of almost back-to-back crises is is going to influence generation not just under 25, but potentially generation under 40. So I am of the exact uh, the exact demographic that you're talking about here. I graduated college in 2008. I was laid off from my first job seven months later when the economy collapsed, and it, it has taken me and you know a lot of that cohort of uh, sort of like mid generation millennials all of the time since then and to scrape together the sort of stability that would have been a lot more achievable had that recession not happened. Now that those that those people are, you know, 10 or 12 years out from that experience, you, you're able to look at that data and say that, okay, the people who graduated from school, whatever kind of school it was, high school, college, law school, whatever, uh, during that period of time, because they graduated into a period of instability, they have had their careers uh, redirected in ways that have uh, impacted not just how much money they earned then, but their lifetime earnings. Does this then widen the sort of OK Boomer divide? I think that as the group of people who are sort of on the uh, receiving end of a lot of the negative economic outcomes that this country has produced over the past 15 years, as that group grows, I think that you're going to see a widening of the existing ideological divide between older Americans and younger Americans. This was really, really legible during the uh, Democratic primaries, where more centrist candidates like Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg were a lot more popular among older voters, whereas uh, further left candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders especially uh, were much, much more popular uh, among younger voters. That divide over what people believe is the mandate of the progressive wing of this country's politics is, I think, only going to be widened as you watch people lose their jobs, as you watch working class people being required to deliver groceries to the, to richer folks, as you watch, you know, transit operators and people like that go into work and then, and then die in disproportionate numbers. And as you watch how the, uh, the effects of the pandemic are felt more acutely among black and Latino people who have experienced environmental racism, who don't have access to healthcare uh, at the same rate as the rest of the population. So I think that Pandemics tend to illuminate how dis- mm-hmm. disadvantages accumulate, and young people who are, you know, not as not as beholden to Cold War rhetoric and and fear about 
more uh, social safety net oriented policies are going to want government to do those things, are going to expect their leaders to have an answer for those problems. Amanda Mole, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Amanda Mole is a staff writer at The Atlantic. conversation with Amanda Mull about Generation C, I wanted to hear directly from someone who falls in that cohort. My name is Judah Lewis. I'm a political science major and an English minor at Howard University. Judah actually completed his first semester of senior year back in 2017, but he was forced to take time away from school in order to pay down the money he owed for tuition. My father had been helping me out um, financially, and uh, he came to me and he was like, you know, I got to be honest with you, like, you're going to have to essentially carry the baton across the uh, the finish line because it's just too expensive, um, which I completely understood. Um, and so that fall, I went to school. You know, I had, a, I had a Pell Grant and that was it. I had no other way to pay the money back. Um, and that was the first half of my senior year. That year, I ended up, they told me that I couldn't register for classes next semester because I had an outstanding balance. Uh, which I knew was going to happen, but I was like, I just, I need to go to school. I need to continue. So I ended up having to take all of my stuff out of my dorm because I wasn't registered for classes and I had to go all the way back home. And I had a bill of a little bit over $18,000 that I had to pay back. Back home in Connecticut, Judah had to figure out how to pay down his debt. I didn't have a job. I didn't really have many people who would hire me because I didn't have a degree Um, and so my younger sister at the time, she was in high school and she said, why don't you work with me at, uh, this Vietnamese restaurant as a waiter? So I said, yeah, sure. I'll do it. Uh, and I did that for a few months. Um, I was making less than minimum wage, uh, which was was difficult. Uh, after that I, I left and I started to work at a warehouse at Amazon. Um, and I did that for a month and then I moved on and I got hired at the Marriott. When I first started there, I was making $11.05. I kept working. I worked there for about a year. Um, I, I got promoted to the supervisor position, and I uh, started to make a little bit more money. Essentially, all of the money that I had, I was just throwing it at this debt. And then I get hired at Voya Financial, which was another promotion. And I was still living well below my means, um, still just trying to find ways to like cut corners so I don't, I can spend less. I had friends who would pick me up from work and bring me home and, and vice versa, just so that I could save money on bus fare and Ubers and that kind of thing. Eventually, I was able to get back to school. So he started his final semester in January. On track to graduate this spring, Judah, like thousands of other students, was planning for commencement celebrations and life post-graduation. But as COVID-19 began to spread, it became clear things weren't going to happen as expected. Obviously, everyone knew what the issue uh, that was going on with COVID-19, um, that it was a it was going to be a national issue um, and that there were going to be some changes to how the university handled it and that kind of thing. Um, originally, we were told that we could stay on campus throughout the rest of the semester, but that everything was going to be online. And then they told us that we were going to have to leave and we could come back April 6. And then that got moved up to them saying, you guys have to leave at the end of spring break, which then got moved up to... Now you have to leave the 22nd of, I think it was March, 
And then one day we actually got an email that said, no, actually, you have to be off of campus within 48 hours. And it's not just the end of the semester celebrations that have been upended by the coronavirus. Once again, Judah finds himself facing an uncertain financial reality. I was told recently that like a scholarship that I had gone for might be postponed because of the coronavirus. I received Pell Grants and student loans and that kind of thing. And I received another scholarship, but I, I'm not sure if it was going to be enough to cover this last semester. That was another way, actually, that I had. Did that scholarship end up coming through or no? I'm not sure. It's still I in the still didn't know. Yeah. yeah. I've been like bothering one of my professors about it. And he said that it might be postponed, which it, 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 I, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. When you talk to your friends about this, um, are you guys, do you feel like you're on the same page with um, people who are in your same situation, gr- people who are graduating from school this year or almost set to graduate, um, and what their prospects might look like for post-graduation? And then even, I don't know, if you're talking about what your life might look like further down the road, like what this is going to mean for you all five or ten years from now. You know, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure um, with the the students that I um, that I'm going to school with if we're on the same page. I know that they're very upset about it as well. Um, I know it really. It's really really difficult to not to work so hard towards something and like you have this idea of being able to go to a commencement and bring your family and that kind of thing and and you don't get to do that. Um, I, I I don't think that we're necessarily on the same page. I think for me it was especially hard given this my particular circumstances um and thinking like finally like i will finally be able to graduate now and i will be able to like show my parents my degree and that kind of thing and i'm going to graduate with honors and that's not mm. going to be happening the same um you know I, it's 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 tough um for sure but i think that it's affected me uniquely um in my financial situation as well as me having left school for for two years. And so you were hoping to go to Teach for America after yes. this. Yes. And what's happened with that? I, I was accepted into Teach for America. I was accepted into the Dallas, Texas region. And so normally what they do is they hold what's called Institute. And for, um, I think it's like a month and a half, you actually, you're, you receive training and you're being taught how to teach and that kind of thing um, from other people that are a part of Teach for America. And that's not going to be happening the same way right now. I don't have all the information, um, but I do know that I'm not going to be heading out to, to Texas right now. I know that part of it's going to be virtual. Um, that's what they're aiming. So, If you think about sort of where we go from, from here as a country, um, do you see that your generation is going to be – uniquely um, impacted by this? Is there a worry that you have that no matter how long this lasts, it's going to have a deep um, impact for longer than just a year or a few months? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that, I think that, I mean, my personal belief is that in life, uh, in order to be successful, you have to have a lot of different things go right. And a lot of little, little things add up to huge monumental things. So it's not just me, but what I'm thinking about in particular is like young kids who are still in K to 12 who are not in school right now. What does that mean for them? I'm also thinking about like kids whose parents are struggling financially. 
what does that mean for them? Like if you're not getting a, the, the proper education and the proper care that you need in a span of a couple of months that if you are already in a adverse situation, that could mean very, very bad things for you down the line. And that's one of the reasons that I want to join Teach for America to be able to mitigate that. But um, mm. that's definitely a concern of uh, concern of mine. Well, Judah, I, I really thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and share your story. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Please stay safe and take care. I will. You, you as well. Judah Lewis is a senior at Howard University studying political science and English. Coming up next, a look at the stimulus relief checks, who gets them, who doesn't. We've been hearing from many of you. My name is Alejandro Correa, and I'm calling from Orlando, Florida. I will not be receiving a stimulus check, even though I am a 21-year-old adult who lives on my own, works my own job, and goes to college full-time because my parents claim me as a dependent. My name is Ruth Ann. I'm calling from Cheswell, Delaware, and I work part-time for an international Montessori school. I write grants for two historic sites and for the Lenape Indian Tribe of Delaware. I seem to be too old to be hired anywhere, and I don't qualify for any stimulus help. Give us a call anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE. You're listening to Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This week, many Americans expected to receive a $1,200 check from the government. This one-time payment was supposed to soften the fallout of a severe economic downturn caused by coronavirus. But as the employment rate continues to climb, and many continue to struggle with getting through to understaffed and overwhelmed state unemployment offices, many Americans find themselves in a precarious economic position. Then there's the fact that many people who thought they qualified for the funds have yet to receive payment. Heather Long is an economics correspondent at The Washington Post. I talked with her about people who are falling through the cracks when it comes to receiving this payment. From an economic term, the $1,200 basically is supposed to replace one week of pay in the United Mm. States. So here we are with people who've been out of work now for a month or longer. Is it realistic to think that $1,200 is going to go very far? Absolutely not. The idea, though, was that this would be uh, sort of a supplement, that it could get out fast. It was almost like the emergency grant, if you will, that could get out the door before people could get on unemployment. So Mm -hmm. they did do what a lot of people applaud, which is they boosted unemployment insurance by $600 a week. So that took the average unemployment insurance payment from uh, just shy of $400 a week up to almost 1000 So that's where most people are going to be able to get their wage replacement is through the unemployment insurance system. But obviously, 
as most of your listeners will will know, the horror stories of phone lines are jammed, websites are crashing, people can't even apply. My favorite, I mean, the saddest part is really Florida. Their system is so bad that they have government workers handing out paper applications. So people have to like do a drive through to grab a paper unemployment application. And they reported last night they've only been they've had like 800,000 people try to apply in Florida and they've only processed something crazy like 80,000. That's why they did this check to try to help those people who are going to have to wait a long time for unemployment. And there are still a lot of people, though, who don't qualify for the $1,200 at all. And, and who is missing out on this? One of the ones that shocks people is high school seniors. These poor high school seniors. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's good you don't go to prom. It's a weird time some, for some people. But, you know, there's no prom. There's no graduation. And on top of that, there's no money. So um, hmm. high school seniors and college students are usually claimed as dependents on their parents' tax return. And anyone claimed as a dependent on a tax return doesn't get any money. So it doesn't matter if that college or high school student senior is, has worked a job and then lost it. That doesn't matter. All that matters is if the IRS sees that you are claimed as a dependent on someone else's tax return, there's no money coming to you and there's no money coming to your parent. There's, you're supposed to get this $500 per kid. But that the way that Congress wrote the bill is it's $500 per child under 17. The other group that, that surprised people a lot, uh, I think, so adult dependents, so people who may be disabled and, and maybe in their 30s or 40s or 50s and they're living with a relative, again, they're also dependent, so, so they don't get money either. One that a lot of people are worried about, if you're low income, you don't normally file a tax return, you do have to input your basic information on the irs.gov website. So technically someone who is homeless, for instance, qualifies for this payment. But But how are they going to find a computer and a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's complications. Another one that doesn't get enough attention, and I got some emails about it, if someone is married into a mixed status, in a mixed status relationship, um, if they personally might have the social security number and maybe be a U.S. citizen, but if they're not married to someone with a social security number, it va- it basically voids the whole tax return in this system. So you don't get any money. You also talked to a lot of people about what they're going to spend this money on. I'd like for you to just give us a sense of what that is, number one, but also what it tells you about the economy writ large. So a lot of people refer to these as stimulus checks, and I'm guilty of saying that too. But this really isn't, um, is it stimulus? Stimulus is like extra money that you get that the government would hope you would go out and spend, uh, you know, go bowling or buy shoes or whatever. Um, These are actually relief payments. And you can see that in the early spending data. So I had one of the groups that was the first to process the checks that started processing a week ago last Friday. I asked them you know, to, to tell me so far where are people spending this money, and the vast majority of it was going for basic necessities. And that just tells you, that tells you that that money is being used more or less how Congress was expecting. It, it's, a, it's, um, you know, it's to bridge these gaps because people really need this money for the bare basics right now when they've had potentially three to four weeks of no income coming in. And so for talk about the economy bouncing back, um, right, a a so-called V-shaped recession where people, once they get this money, they're going to go do all those things like 
save it for going on vacations and going to restaurants. The fact that people are just covering the basics suggests that maybe it's not going to look like that. I think you're absolutely right. And I, I worry a lot that when I talk to people, they say, okay, you know, this money, it's going to help so much. I'm going to pay my April rent. I was talking to a woman who has to use some of the money. She's waiting to um, pay her rent on her trailer in a rural Virginia community. She told her landlord, you know, when the check comes in, I could pay you. Well, what's she going to do in May or in June? Mm. So I think, you know, we've given people this Band-Aid to help them for a few weeks. And it's actually kind of similar with those small business administration loans for the small businesses. You know, we've given them sort of 10 weeks of aid. But this looks like it's going to stretch on for a long time, particularly in some parts of America. And what happens the next month? I worry a lot about that. There's a lot of talk, as you pointed out, about small business loans and that pool of money running out. But... Do we expect to see Congress appropriating more money, maybe another $1,200 check for individuals as we get into month two or three of this pandemic? I don't know if it's going to be part of this next package, which does look like it'll be more emergency money for that small business program. But I think reality is going to eventually set in, even for some lawmakers, that the idea was, oh, we would give small businesses all this money and then they're going to go out and rehire workers. That is not what is happening. When we still have 22 million or more people unemployed in this country in May and in June, and that's stretching on, I'm sure those lawmakers are receiving the same calls I am, and it's heartbreaking and you want to help. Well, Heather Long, thank you so much for coming on and helping us walk through this. Thank you. And please go to irs.gov if you are unsure where your payment is. Heather Long is an economics correspondent at The Washington Post. As part of our continuing look at how mayors across the country are tackling this pandemic, we called up the mayor of Lexington, Kentucky, Linda Gorton. Now, when I think of Lexington, I think about horses. I mean, it is the horse capital of the world, after all. But I know there's much more to it than that. I asked her to tell us about how her community and how COVID-19 has impacted business and life as usual in her city. Lexington, Fayette County, we are a merged government. So Mm. we are the city and the county and we're about 325,000 people. And we are, of course, the home of thoroughbreds and thoroughbred farms and bourbon Mm. and Kentucky (laughs) basketball. You know, the horse industry is uh, just carrying on. They're foaling right now. So the babies Mm. are being born. And our bourbon industry is interesting because it has started making hand sanitizer. In general, we are doing very well here. I am a registered nurse by profession. I had a full profession in nursing. And so early on, before we ever had a case in Kentucky of the virus, I recognized that we needed to get our stakeholders together to share information. And we did that before we had a case. And then when we had our first case on March the 6th, we just cranked into high gear. And uh, possibly because I'm familiar with how viruses spread, I immediately, within that those first few days, closed down our jails, our senior center, our nursing homes to visitors. We took some really strong action in the beginning. 
And was this unusual in, in the state? Were you one of the first cities in the state to do this? Yes. And it helped us with our distancing and with people uh, protecting these vulnerable groups. We did it with our homeless population. We immediately knew we needed to identify some other places where we could spread them out. And so we did that early on. We have not, here in Lexington, uh, we have not had a death from coronavirus Mm. for a week. And that's, we're a good-sized city. We have been proactive, and I think that has helped us, plus our population here. People have been really cooperative, people helping their neighbors. We are a highly educated, progressive community with um, very strong health care assets here, and we're known for a lot of those positives. So people here have taken it seriously. And as you pointed out, you haven't had, you said you haven't had any deaths this week. Do you feel like there is a flattening of the curve? Did you have a surge and now it's gotten better? In Lexington, uh, we have stayed fairly flat. Mm. We keep going back to the kinds of actions we've taken. And we have, uh, in Lexington, we have the University of Kentucky with their health care and some other major health care systems. So we are the largest health care hub in the state. If you just think about it, you'd say, well, we should have had more cases maybe. But Lexingtonians, for the most part, I think have pretty much now, they've followed the rules for quite a while. And in the whole thing, our highest daily case number was 19 here in Lexington. And now it has dropped considerably. So we never did have a really high spike. The other thing we're looking at as we're talking with mayors across the country is the impact that this uh, pandemic is having on your tax revenue and lost revenue in general. Um, And what impact do you think that's going to have on the county as you look ahead to budgeting for this next, next cycle? The revenue impact will be significant. I am right now in the middle of crafting my budget. I'll give my budget address to the council on April 28th. And we have worked with our forecasters very closely at the local, state, and national level. We think our revenues will be down by tens of millions And it will require some uh, reductions in our budget. And some of them will be very painful. Yeah, where Uh, where is the the most painful reduction going to have to come from? Well, um, that's difficult to say. We will not, we will keep our, our basic services mostly whole, police, fire, corrections, garbage collection, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things that people have to have. We'll see some hits to our parks budget and to our, it'll be pretty much throughout government, we'll be taking some reductions because we've got to, you know, we've basically got to make up uh, tens of millions of dollars. And my take on it is that We will not go bankrupt, which I believe some cities may. We will stay healthy. We have a very healthy, strong um, 
Economic Contingency Fund, which people refer to as the Rainy Day Fund for emergencies, just like this one. And my view on this is the long view, that as a community and a city government, we've got to stay strong for the future, right? So that it's not just about next year's budget, it's about the next year after that and the year after that, because I think the impact will continue for more than one year. So uh, the the reductions will be across government and they'll be, you know, they'll be significant, but in many cases, the public won't notice. You mean it because they're going to be things that maybe they hadn't been using before? How, how would they know? I, I guess I, I'm, let's think about the biggest, what are the biggest ticket items in your budget? For quite a while, we've had a lot of vacant positions that we held vacant to make mm. our budget last year, mm-hmm. but they're funded. You know, when we have a vacant position, it's still funded. We're going to abolish those, mm. and that will save us a few million dollars just to mm. give you an idea. Mm-hmm. It will have almost no impact because they've been vacant now for at least a year and a half. What about schools? Schools, so our city government does not have any oversight over Mm. the school system here, unlike other cities. So the school systems are independent, and they have a very different tax base. They have mostly property tax base. Well, Mayor Gorton, thank you so much for coming on and, and speaking with me. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, too. Linda Gorton is the mayor of Lexington, Kentucky. One more thought for me today. Each generation has its defining moment. For the baby boomers, it was Vietnam. For us Gen Xers, the Cold War. For the generation under 40, their lives have been marked by an almost perpetual amount of uncertainty, instability, and change. 9-11, the Iraq War, the first African-American president, a recession, the norm-busting presidency of Donald Trump, and now this, a global pandemic. We don't know what the long-term impact is going to be on this generation, but we can already start to see its influence in our current politics, especially on the Democratic side. Not that long ago, the choice for Democratic voters was between a candidate of big structural change, that was Bernie Sanders, of course, or a return to the status quo of life pre-Donald Trump, and that's Joe Biden. Today, thanks to COVID-19, we don't have a choice. We are living in a shaken up and potentially permanently altered world. The inequities of our economic and healthcare system have been laid bare. And that has changed the way Joe Biden is now addressing the challenges ahead. During the primaries, Biden criticized Sanders for pushing revolution when what voters wanted were results. But on a recent video chat with Bernie Sanders the other day, Biden stressed that we can't just go back to business as usual. Joe Biden is now embracing a conversation about structural reform that would not have happened without this crisis making him more of a change candidate than he was earlier. That's all for us today. I want to give a big shout out to the people who made this show. Patricia Jacob, Amber Hall, Alexandra Boti, Polly Arungu, David Gable, and Lee Hill. And a very big thank you to those who came into the studio to make sure this show got on the air. That's Vince Fairchild and Debbie Daughtry. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.